Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, For Whom Does the Heart Beat? We talk about heart rate, its utility, the history of using heart rate in training, and what that historical perspective can tell us about the effectiveness of using heart rate. And, spoiler alert, that is probably not as effective as you think. Today's episode, The Heart Knows. For whom does my heart beat? Well, probably not for my lactate threshold. Let's get into today's episode. Historical memory is an amazing phenomena. People really don't think that history plays any role in the present. I think most people think of it as a skill that lets you perform well at a trivia night at a local bar, but it doesn't really have any functional utility beyond that. And ironically, I think the conviction of history's irrelevance or sort of as this ultimate uh, leisure time self-indulgent area of study is what perpetuates a lot of the problems that we have and it empowers the significance of historical memory because we don't even think of that as a concept for most people our sense of what is and why things should be done is heavily sometimes overwhelmingly predicated on our sense of precedent or our historical memory because precedent comes from our sense of cultural practice, tradition, necessity, a conviction that things are done a certain way because of blank, right? The idea that it because it is done, it must be good to do. And sports, certainly endurance sports, are grossly unaware of the extent to which a very, very narrow historical memory gives a few supposedly seminal events in training history and competitive history overwhelming levels of influence on our contemporary thought process. For something that's supposedly so scientific, endurance sports and training and preparation for competition and the measurement and calculation and calibration of our process towards creating performance, it's actually shockingly unprogressive. And a perspective of history lets us recognize that this is really to the point where it's the historical memory of sport even oversimplifies the essential understandings of events in training history in the past. The historical memory of sport 
predominantly creates the illusion of simplicity. Our memory of sport is something that's a very simple process by which people apply an active will to create and then sustain the necessary self-discipline. And that if you simply are have the capacity to do this, or you don't, and those of us who have the capacity are sorted out, and we are the exceptional and the unique, and that's why sporting performance is so celebrated, because it discovers the unique and exceptional among us. And of course, the irony of this is that it flies totally in the face of what should logically be, tr- logically be true from evolutionary biology, which is that most of us should have a pretty, within the species, a pretty optimal, um, you know, highly functioning um, epigenetic response to stress and stimulus in our environment. But sports inverts that and assumes that actually it's only a very small minority of people that are capable of doing that. And we don't question that or think about that or interrogate that because this narrow bandwidth of historical memory has embedded the core perspective of it's not that complicated. And this idea that sport is not that complicated and that, you know, people who think about it and try to understand it and assess it just ultimately don't get it or are trying to make excuses or grasping at straws. I think that really is just a historical memory phenomenon that is uh, somehow encouraging us basically to not think. And in some cases, like literally not think about it at all. And heart rate training, I think, is a great example of an area where historical memory and this particular kind of narrowing, uh, intellectually uh, narrowing historical memory that seems to be highly so highly prevalent in endurance sports takes over and has such a preponderant dominant effect. And in this episode, what we want to try to explore is what is this whole phenomena concept of heart rate training? Why do people fixate on it, make use of make use of it, or at least convince themselves they're making use of it to drive and direct their training? I want to question whether or not it's realistic to really, you know, do that and what we can really get out of that. Um, does it, is it actually this window um, that we have uh, been told to perceive it to be? And also then, you know, ultimately look at the historic context of what we know about heart rate training um, as a practice in terms of when people have sort of based this, we'll look at an example, probably the most famous example of when people have used this effectively to try to develop and direct their process of uh, training towards performance. But I think we want to make sure we all have a clear, basic understanding, the most simple understanding um, of the heart as a part of the body. The heart is a muscle. It's a muscular organ, but it's a muscle. And muscles adapt in response to uh, stress. And we know from the whole concept of training is that muscles will respond and become stronger as a consequence of stress. And one of the ways that they will become stronger is that they can do more work. And they can do more work um, by contracting at a greater rate of contraction and contracting more powerfully. And the heart is something that does this too. One example 
that demonstrates the extent to which the heart responds to training uh, is athletic heart syndrome. And historically, this concept of an enlarged heart, a heart with a very low um, resting heart rate or right, your beats per minute, um, one in a state of non-exertion, right? Typically, you're going to reach your resting heart rate uh, when you're, you know, deep asleep, um, that this was taken to be some sort of sign of a anomaly and, you know, a health concern of your heart was enlarging and whatnot. And it's been debunked, the notion that um, the heart is, athlete's heart phenomena um, is bad and that that's going to cause you harm. And we recognize now that this is an example of the heart training and the heart is training by um, the BPM, right, is lower. The heart can produce more work more efficiently with less effort. And it's highly illustrated of the extent to which um, the heart will respond to training stress, just as many other aspects of our physiology and biology respond to training stress. And when we look at this concept, I think that this concept of the decreasing resting heart rate is something that isn't always understood. I've, when I coached high school athletes, I would sometimes have athletes who'd, you know, come to practice and they'd be all jazzed up because they went to their physical and they'd be telling everybody how, oh, the doctor said my heart's too low. Well, the reality is, is that's a normal response to exercise. And, um, you know, our sense of what is a normal range of a resting heart rate is probably partly a reflection of a high degree of sedentism in our contemporary society, that it's unusual to see people uh, exercising uh, to a great degree. And you kind of wonder, well, what would the you know resting heart rate have been for the average uh, population of more you know pre-industrial agrarian societies, for example, where a lot of people are performing you know manual labor over long periods of time, day in and day out. I would imagine that you probably would have trended to see you know lower heart rates because that would fit the trend of you know continual physical activity. Um, you know, induces adaptive stress towards those kinds of transformations. And this idea of the low resting heart rate fits into, I think, the predominant paradigm of how people look at heart rate, which is when we think about training, we're trying to keep our heart rate low. And that people then, you know, are taking their heart rates and then maybe they're also trying to say that, okay, you know, the heart rate then correlates to these zones. And so progression is then how fast can you run at any given heart rate? And so then by further logical extension, the faster you can run at a low heart rate, the more likely we are to consider um, that to be a sign of significant physical uh, adaptation in response to training stress. And so people use heart rate to pace themselves and people will use it to pace themselves for endurance training, some people use it to try to pace themselves for high-intensity training. Um, there's certainly more aggregate, reasonable evidence to say you can try to use your heart rate for longer, steadier periods of uh, lower-intensity aerobic uh, endurance-type training. Um, but there's very little to support using heart rate for high-intensity training, um, 
you know, such as the so-called VO2 max intensity. Um, I don't agree with the VO2 max paradigm, as people who've listened to a lot of this podcast are already well aware of. But even the people who are proponents of that explicitly say that you can't use heart rate really to drive that. And I think, you know, the consensus around the zones is that, you know, once you get over the so-called lactate threshold too, which I also don't agree with, but, you know, even within that paradigm, they feel once you get over that point, you can't use heart rate anymore. But you'll find people saying that you can target heart rate specifically for VO2 max training, right? So there's an example of, you know, conflicting ideas. And that's one of the things that's kind of fun, to be honest, about trying to understand endurance sports is there's so much stuff to try to parse through um, because there's, you know, been an increasing democratization of training, right, where we all have access to information. And I think, ironically, the more access we have to information, the more discussion we need to have because the more we need this ability to weigh through and sort through uh, what, what we're seeing. So what if, though, instead of thinking about heart rate as this concept of I want to train, and let's use the five-zone model, which here's item number three. I don't agree with the five-zone model of training. But let's say you, for sake of argument, that you want to work out at zone three, and you have believed that you've identified that your zone three heart rate is 160. You say, okay, I'm going to work out at 160 beats per minute. Is that actually a good idea? You know, because then what you're saying is I'm going to pace myself and not exceed 160 beats a minute. And uh, I would suggest no. I think that that's a very poorly conceived strategy and that I don't think it matters uh, really what our heart rate is in training. And if anything, I think it's possible that we might want to ask the question, should we be thinking the opposite? Should we be thinking, can I get my heart rate as high as possible while maintaining a relative level of exertion? Is that actually a form of training because the heart is a muscle and why is it that people would try to go faster and work harder in order to strengthen all of their muscles except in the instance of the heart we don't want to apparently be doing that and we need to keep that down but why is that well it's because we've taken our concept of the heart away from our understanding of a muscle and away from something that adapts and responds to training stress and that therefore those adaptations are good and desirable. And I think we end up undertraining the heart and we end up neglecting the cardiovascular system when instead of looking at it as something that we want to try to challenge and engage and make stronger, instead we're trying to simply work towards using that as an external metric. And when we look at that as an external metric that is supposed to tell us what we're doing in the rest of our body, we now aren't thinking about the heart in the same way. So here's a quote um, from Marius Backen's write-up about um, his ideas about training with lactate. And this was a, a sort of a smaller comment within the broader context. Um, but I want to read this idea. Quote, in addition to looking at the lactate levels in a standardized setting, you can also compare lactate to heart rate, which is otherwise harder to do accurately outside due to warm weather and terrain. In terms of that, you want to aim for 
what you want to aim for is the lowest possible warm-up heart rate at a given pace and the highest possible heart rate at the highest possible speed at the anaerobic threshold right before I ran my 1306 best for 5,000 meters. I did a threshold session with a heart rate of 181, just 11 beats below my max at a lactate level of 3 millimoles and speed of 253 per kilometer. The warm-up heart rate was low, unquote. There's some other pieces in there, but what I'm thinking about as I look at this is here's an articulation of saying, number one, I want to get my heart rate up. I want to be training with my heart rate as high as possible. Um, well, which goes against a lot of the concepts of how people believe you should be utilizing uh, heart rate or to the extent that people believe that you should utilize heart rate. I think the reality is there's a lot of people that don't use heart rate because I think when people get to kind of higher, more competitive environments, we kind of inevitably end up abandoning strategies that aren't highly effective because we just kind of get them, they just kind of get winnowed away because of the lack of responsiveness that we get relative to our competitive goals. But here, right, um, we know that this is an idea that is contrary to what a lot of people are using for heart rate. We're using heart rate to pace ourselves. Here he's not talking about using heart rate to pace himself. He's essentially, I would look at this as a concept of training the heart rate. And what he's also looking to say is that I want to create as much heart Beat frequency. I want to be able to have my heart beat as fast as possible relative to having my lactate as low as possible. And this also totally goes against the notion that heart rate is specifically predictive of given zones of exertion. And I understand that people could counter to that point and say, well, you can retest it and whatever. And I agree that testing and reevaluation is important. But whereas lactate is going to tell you um, metabolically, really what's going on at any given time, heart rate isn't actually tied to that. And I think that a key understanding is that heart rate over time, that a lower heart rate in response to a level of exertion reflects fitness, but it does not make fitness. So I think we can generally look at and say, um, can I use the heart rate then to stay aerobic? Is that then reasonable? And I think that this is something that is far more likely to be effective with continuous steady efforts um, and not with interval training, whether they're aerobic intervals and especially as you're doing increasingly high intensity intervals. In a race situation, you know, I will oftentimes look at my heart rate and I use that as a reference point to sort of conceptualize, okay, Right now, I feel really good. I feel really comfortable. But if I know from past experience that if I go much over blank, I seem to find that my ventilation, my ventilatory rate, my respiratory rate starts to increase dramatically. And that's in an instance, though, where I'm applying, trying to apply basically as constant a level of stress as possible. And my heart rate graphs after those races will oftentimes, they'll rise initially and then they'll basically be like a laser beam all the way through. And I think that you can look at heart rate data and you can perhaps speculate on how comfortable or how much, um, how close somebody was to their limit in a race depending on what their heart rate 
looks like. And sometimes if races are longer, it might be that the first part of the race, there's more variation as the heart rate is going up and down and going up and down. And then as they sort of get further into the race and closer to the last portion of the race, then the heart rate starts to become increasingly level. So it's like some level of elasticity of energy, maybe, um, just sort of making up phrases here, which maybe isn't such a good idea, but uh, elasticity of energy almost is gone. And if you've done long distance races, then you'll probably relate to what I'm talking about. Whereas at first it will usually feel incredibly easy, almost distractingly easy. Um, and it's not until the later phases that things start to get difficult. And, you know, usually if you go back and you look around the time that changes, you also lose that um, variability in your heart rate. And I think that part of that is because the heart rate is a reflection of stress and it's a muscle and you can tell how hard uh, that muscle is working based on, you know, what it's doing. And if it's able to sort of apply a little work and then sort of relax and apply a little work, then obviously you're feeling comfortable. When you get to the point where it's just constantly, you know, drilling it, um, you know, at its sort of maximum sustainable rate, then you're usually at the point where your level of stress is getting quite high. But outside of a racing context, I really find that heart rate training is pretty useless. And I think that one of the reasons why people are really focused on heart rate training is because it's an available metric and because in other sports, there's a lack of competing metrics and this sense of, well, I need to have this external, this number evaluating what I'm doing. And, and I think there's utility to that. Uh, and it's not just, but at the same time, there's limitation to that. And that's not to say that, well, power uh, is somehow always better. I did a run on Sunday that was pretty unremarkable. It was maybe like 85 minutes is like 11 miles or something. And I was trying to do some 600s at threshold and then 300s easy. And I, for the life of me, could not feel comfortable and my watts were appropriate they were under threshold but you know and then I finished and my lactate was 2.5 way over threshold right so there's another instance of well you can't really tell exactly from you know any given number always what's going on sometimes when you don't feel good that's the most important indicator um, but by the same token my heart rate was also consistent you know with where it's sort of built up to and if You've looked at some of the stuff that I've shared on the Instagram page at Black Cats Run and on the YouTube channel now as well. Um, I've showed some of this data in terms of my progression of lactate threshold efforts with my running, which was where I've been primarily working to apply this over the last two to three months now, it now being October. And in doing this, you know, I've had a somewhat moderate trend of increase in heart rate, but it has also been, you know, relatively modest. And I think that essentially it's gone from being about an average of 153 in the beginning of this progression to now 165, 166, which really is not a lot, I would say. And if anything, I think that it's possible. I would want to see that continue to go up. And as long as the lactate is staying low, then that's good, right? Maybe my heart rate is, my heart is getting stronger um, as a process of that, right? You know, and even if that's not necessarily the case, I think just asking that question is important to sort of try to challenge 
our set of fixed mindsets about heart rate and its relative utility as an indicator of exercise stress and exercise stimulus. Because if your heart is beating faster, are you making this stronger, right? Because, you know, now I think the qualifier is I don't use a chest strap really for the most part because I don't care um, about heart rate that much. And I think that the evidence seems to suggest that the wrist uh, watches um, with the heart rate readers on the watch are basically about 95% as accurate as a chest strap. And uh, the chest strap is just, on the bike, I don't mind it on the bike, but when I run, it tends to give chafing and cut into my skin, which is obviously, as you can imagine, very uncomfortable. And anybody who's experienced that probably knows exactly how unpleasant that is. So, you know, and as I'm doing this, though, I think that in aggregate, I think the data I'm getting is still very reasonable. And so, yes, my heart rate is, you know, higher than when I started doing these lactate threshold sessions, but my millimoles are low and I feel comfortable. So does heart rate matter at all? I think no, but also yes. You know, like in, in racing, my heart rate can be as much as 192 beats a minute for 90 minutes. But, and maybe in training, I want to see if I can get to the point where I can do that comfortably. Maybe I don't. Um, you know, part of my point here is I'm not really paying that much attention to heart rate in training. I think it's something that you can look at over the long term to sort of reflect, again, am, am, am I getting in better shape, right? Over the longer period of time, um, uh, one aspect of fitness is you shouldn't, your heart shouldn't be beating as fast to be going at a given intensity as compared to where it was maybe three or four months ago. Um, but at the same time, that's also a reflection of the fact that your lactate threshold has increased. And so that relative intensity is also falling further and further below your lactate threshold, which means that you're more metabolically efficient at that intensity. So that also is just in general, systemically less stressful. And I think, um, the level of perceived exertion is almost always going to have a preponderant effect on how we feel and more so than our heart rate because I will do lactate threshold where my heart rate is, you know, 160 to 170 and it will feel very easy. And then I can go out and have my heart rate be 160 to 170. It can feel absolutely terrible. And I tapped into this research, um, from Andreas Vinhorst, who's a medical doctor, a PhD, and a, I don't know if he's still a competing professional triathlete, but has been a professional triathlete. Um, and I, you know, I got this, uh, came across this listening to some interviews with Tim Noakes, who uh, Andreas Vinhorst had done this research and, you know, gone to study with Tim Noakes. And basically, this research demonstrated that um, being ahead, or being behind in a competition will change the function of your biology. And what does that tell us then about the level of exertion, right? And our ability to do things easily or more difficult and then uh, easier or with greater levels of difficulty, I mean to say. And then in turn, what does that suggest about the heart? I think it suggests the heart is reactive rather than instructive. Because if being in a relative position of competitive success, being in the lead, feeling like you are stronger than somebody, even if it's an illusion, 
versus feeling like you're weaker than somebody, even if that is also an illusion, is going to have a significant impact on your ability to perform, uh, regardless of your heart rate. And at the same time, it's probably then going to make your heart rate feel different. And by feel different, I mean that um, that heart rate that you are at will feel significantly easier or harder depending on that relative social environment of uh, social comparison of performance changing the biology. And I think that shows the heart, again, as being reactive um, rather than instructive. And some people say, well, if it's reactive, then that's why I can use it to guide my training because it's reactive. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's no evidence to say that people can train uh, well while also looking at a heart rate number. But I think that to really determine if that's the case, you'd have to find some way to put them in a sensory vacuum where the only uh, capacity they had was to look at their heart rate because people aren't just looking at their heart rate, they're taking in other pieces of information. And I think a lot of successful athletes at whatever level of performance, but people who are getting a level of improvement over time through their training are probably people who are willing to pay attention to, you know, how they feel and they're going to adjust the intensity, how they feel. I, I think that most, um, you know, competent achieving people in sport are not, you know, ignoring how they feel and just exclusively focusing on their heart rate. But I'm sure there are a lot of people um, who do have that experience um, because if you don't have the right guidance or input or you don't have enough time doing this stuff, um, a lot of people start getting into individual sports and endurance sports you know, after they've done all of their formal education. And so after their, that window of um, you know, school-based sports and teams is over, which is really going to change your ability to, to, to learn from and you know, hear different ideas about this kind of stuff because you do it more so in a bubble except to whatever extent you actively seek stuff out. Whereas if you're at practices, whatever, you're more likely to be exposed for better or for worse to, you know, different ideas or perspectives. But when we say the heart is instructive, that would imply that the heart can tell you what you're, what to do. And when we say the heart is reactive, I think what that just means is the heart is changing based on the level of stress and that the level of stress we're experiencing um, might not necessarily be a measure indicator of a supposed zone or even necessarily an indicator of our of our threshold. Um, I do think that it's probably the case that a lot of people train too hard, um, and I myself fall into that trap all the time. It's, it's not an easy habit to break if you've somebody who sort of has had that ingrained uh, into you for, you know, one or two decades to try to get out of that mindset is, is not something that's very straightforward. Um, but when we look at this kind of stuff, let me give you an example of how the heart rate is not necessarily informative in the way that it should be compared to say a different data metric. So I did a, the run that I mentioned doing on Sunday, um, felt absolutely terrible. Um, probably the worst run I've had in, in three months. And I was, especially jarring because I had been used to feeling extremely good. And so then um, I was looking at my aerobic calculator and the data I've been tracking on there um, as a part of like other kinds of experiments and models that I've been tinkering with. And 
when I looked at the heart rate, I'm kind of a, what's my average heart rate per every five workouts? There's really no trend. There's nothing really changing there. But when I looked at um, my power, one of the things I've shown previously um, on our YouTube channel is over time, this trajectory of progression. And that's been pretty steady. And lately what I've done is I've created a column of data for a five-day moving average. So it's just every workout, it tells me the average watts of the preceding five workouts. Um, and so this five-workout moving average is a way to try to look at different, little differently um, and get a little bit sort of more um, concrete sense of the relationship between this. And it had improved very linearly um, from about... 306, 309 watts up to it got to uh, highest point it's been at has uh, 355 watts. So, and I've been very happy with that improvement as I'm sure you can imagine. But over the last uh, three or four workouts where I noticed I hadn't been feeling not as good and then the most recent training session felt especially like really bad and but also bad in a way that I was familiar with experiencing many, many times in the past. And over the last couple sessions, that moving average has gone from 355 to 352 to 351, and then down to 346. And But there's nothing in the heart rate to suggest that anything is changing, right? So if I'm using heart rate as a metric, what am I going to conclude? The other thing I was able to do on that as I... Uh, I had, again, a friend out there on a bicycle, and I was running with uh, another person who's better shaped than I am. And uh, I was, you know, we stopped at after the first set of 600s. I said, I want to test this. I realized I didn't have any uh, wipes, so I was like, tested it, and it said 2.7 millimoles. And I was like, well, I can't really wipe this clean from sweat, you know, when I'm taking the sample, so this might be contaminated. So I said, whatever, there's no way that it would be that high. I don't feel good, but the watts or whatever, and just doesn't, why would it be that high? And so then we did the next set and I got back to the car where I had the uh, paper towel, whatever. So then I was able to take a clean sample and it said 2.5 millimole. So I guess the sample I got earlier in the workout was actually probably accurate. And I looked at that and I said, well, this is A, interesting because it shows that my sense that in the past... I was just basically always drifting into trying to do my running training over threshold is confirmed by this. And, you know, having a heart rate monitor in the past never really helped with that um, because I think that depending on your level of conditioning and what you've been doing specifically for training, you might be, you can't, you can't say that your heart rate, any given heart rate is necessarily indicative of what's going on. And I also go back to my test in July where you know, my concept of threshold as self-selected had me coming in at 5.8 millimoles after um, after 10 minutes. And it's been suggested to me by a lot of different people over the years that um, I don't know how to train intensively and that I just train really easy. And, you know, the irony is, is I think what this demonstrates is that the opposite is true, that, uh, you know, one of my challenges has been always training really hard. And even on that run, I was focused more on the conversation I, we were having on the, on the loop 
than I was on my effort. And then I started to realize that, oh, this is a very familiar feeling, just sort of like displacing and ignoring, you know, however I'm feeling that I'm exerting and just defaulting to I'm running with somebody or I wasn't riding in this case, but I could be riding with somebody and I'm just doing whatever intensity they're setting and just sort of continuing um, to talk and, you know, I've and just talk over my level of, um, you know, aerobic strain and a very familiar feeling. And then looking at this data in this way, it's like, wow, you know, this is not good. Like, you know, all these times when I felt like this, I've done so much training um, over threshold. But the heart rate wasn't revealing because it was just in the 160s again. So based on heart rate, you know, I would assume that there was just something wrong with my head that I was being mentally weak, et cetera, et cetera. But then when I look at the power and I look at the power trend, I say, okay, now I can actually identify that, you know, here's something that actually shows that I might be slipping back into overtraining. And then by looking at this data, Okay, which I think is a a better representation of what's going on. And then looking at that, then compared to the lactate, also a better representation that's going on, you start to see some bigger picture phenomena. So then I went and then I looked at and I sorted and I said, okay, let me sort by uh, lactate threshold intensity um, that I've been applying. And I looked at it in terms of specific minutes for the intensity sessions. And then because of the stimulus doesn't turn off and on, in the recovery periods, um, I looked at well just the net um, stimulus with the intensity minutes plus the quote unquote recovery minutes, and I just and I saw that I had a massive anomaly, um, whereas basically for the last I think it's now eleven weeks of this process, my sessions have all been you know about um, forty five to fifty five minutes with a couple closer to 30 minutes and then a couple, maybe 60 to 65 minutes that a week ago I had two consecutive days where I was first hunted 140 minutes. And then the very next day I went out and did 205 minutes of threshold intensity. And that when I look at, um, my sort of threshold volume week by week, um, that has varied between about an hour and 45 up to about four hours. And then all of a sudden I have this week uh, the preceding week where it was six hours and 25 minutes and it just jumped up out of nowhere. And that was because I did those um, back-to-back sessions. And I think part of the reason is, was because I was feeling good. I you know wanted to try that longer run with the three sets of nine by 800, but also because I didn't really think about the f- a, a fact that the threshold testing I had done the day before, I ran mine and then I ran most of Caleb McVeigh's with him. And that was 14 miles of running and a whole bunch of running at threshold intensity to over threshold intensity. And I consecutive consecutified that, um, you know, between that day and then the subsequent longer run day. And then I look at this and I say, okay, well now I see what's going on and I can identify from this data. Um, okay, this is a trend towards overtraining because it's my, um, perspective on this. My hypothesis is that if you're training correctly at this intensity, you should just genuine, generally continue to see a progression. And maybe at some point you see diminishing, return, diminishing returns in that progression. And one, I've mentioned in other contexts that one of the episodes we're working on um, is an episode about terminal velocity. You know, what happens as you get closer and closer to 
you know, that ultimate cutoff because you obviously can't go infinitely faster at threshold. That's just impossible, right? The body can't go infinitely fast. So therefore your threshold also cannot be infinitely fast. So what happens when you get to closer to terminal velocity? How would you know if that's the case? Although I would say most of us aren't ever going to get anywhere close to that. And so if we're really seeing a drop off in progression, it's going to be a training uh, issue. But so now I can look at this and it's because this is the first time I've had a regression um, in watts and I can identify this as overtraining. I can use my knowledge from the lactate meter and I can make this insight. Um, that's instructive. I can't see any of these conclusions or recognize any of these possibilities from heart rate because there is nothing about my heart rate that suggested that anything was amiss. So I do think, again, that a low heart rate at intensity is a symptom of fitness. And I think that um, low millimole and low relative perceived exertion at um, a higher heart rate is also a sign of fitness. But, you know, the heart is a reactive mechanism. It's not instructive. And why then has the heart rate become such a central paradigm? So if you look into the history of heart rate use in training and you say look at look into the heart rate monitor for example which is obviously a critical piece of wearable information technology that uh, people have used um first heart rate monitor is in the 70s around I think 97 for the national nordic team uh from Finland and you know probably about 5 or 6 years after that um, it starts getting produced for the mass market. And, you know, of course, marketing takes over as it enters into the mass market phase and it becomes a thing you can get and track. And so then there are subsequently tons and tons of recommendations on how to use it to determine how to train. And the 1980s was a pretty significant growth period, both for uh, professional sports for sports media, and then also for uh, triathlon, for example, as an endurance sport. And in triathlon, we're trying to train across multiple disciplines or anybody who does multiple forms of endurance exercise, you don't have to be a triathlete to do that, um, knows that it's you know hard to sort of compare across um, metrics. But the heart rate monitor becomes this supposed you know solution to that problem. And you know, of course, with the heart rate monitor, right, it's all going to be about intensity. And then that use of the heart rate monitor measure intensity feeds into the idea of zones because, well, you know, what's the point if there's all these numbers and they go up and they go down and well, then you start to have these zones that emerge. But the problem is that heart rate ranges very significantly from person to person and ranges widely across the whole population, right? So like, for example, my maximum heart rate is 212 or 213 beats per minute. And it's been that way for the last 15 years. So it hasn't gone down, uh, which goes against, as you're going to see, some of this uh, popular wisdom about heart rate, because uh, there's a ton of BS about how to calculate your training heart rate. Um, for example, uh, the internet says you sub should subtract your age from uh, 220, and that's your maximum heart rate. So according to the internet, my maximum heart rate is 186, and that's just absolute BS. That's simply not true. Um, I can get my heart rate up to 206 pretty mindlessly anytime I do a race or a segment, 
even on the bike, a Strava segment, you know, it's, I mean, obviously I'm at that point, I'm working hard physically, but it's not this, you know, monumental achievement to do that. It's just more about whether I feel like working that hard, um, you know, for that purpose in training, which usually there's no benefit to do that. And I'm just going to trash myself, but very easy for me to get my heart rate up over that. So clearly point being clearly my heart rate is in 186. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm going really fast because I have this max heart rate. I actually think that's another problem with heart rate is that, um, having a higher heart rate doesn't seem to lead to any sort of person to person improvement in performance. Um, you know, but it does mean that these train training models of training at X, you know, value, you know, subtracted from Y standard are crap. Um, but a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think that 150 beats is 150 beats and it becomes the standardized phenomena. But I, a lot of people don't realize that their uh, maximum heart rate is very, very different. But this is what you find on the internet. You can consider also the math method, maximum MAF, maximum aerobic function, um, which Phil Maffetone, um, which is also something that, you know, gained a lot of traction in triathlon, I think in the eighties and the nineties, I want to say. Um, but the math method, one of the recommendations is subtract your age from 180. And, uh, then that's how you should train. And I, I bought the book a couple of years ago, um, and I really do not recommend the book because there's like maybe one chapter that's kind of interesting where it sort of explains basically subtract your heart rate from blank and then just only train at that heart rate and then eventually get faster at that heart rate. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a good concept. I think it's similar to the concept of, you know, identify lactate threshold, basically keep yourself aerobic, train aerobically and eventually um, if you just do that, you'll get faster and faster aerobically. But if I trained at the um, Maffetone, at Maffetone's uh, method, um, my training heart rate would need to be no higher than 146. And if I'm doing that, I'm so far below lactate threshold, I would question whether or not I'm even getting the significant uh, level of strain for that system. Because when I run at lactate threshold right now, it's like 160 to 170. Um, and uh, even for um, my dad is 64. And uh, according to the Mephitone method, his should be 116 beats a minute. But when he runs at lactate threshold, his heart is at least around the 130s right now. So uh, like this guidance is so mass market. It's so ubiquitous and generic that it doesn't probably work that it's like not generic like it probably works for a very few people but the illusion is that it works for everybody so you can imagine people going out and trying to say well this is this heart rate and i'm going to do that and you know it's just not going to be effective for people plus heart rate is just way more subjective as a, a phenomena in terms of like what heart rate responds to. So it's not even correct in the in the most basic sense that fractional util, utilization of max heart rate, it's it's just not accurate because not everybody has the same max heart rate and that can vary by 50 beats at least from person to person and both of those people can be high performing um, athletes in, in the scale of the general population and even the person with the 50 beat lower max heart rate could 
be much higher performing as I know plenty of people who are much stronger than me who have much lower maximum heart rate values than I do. So again, like what's the utility or the significance of that? Um, but now because sports training is both a historical, we don't care uh, where or when ideas come from. And because it's generally pretty indifferent to, to data, we don't really feel that we need evidence. We just want anecdotes from the quote unquote best performers um, the heart rate has just become a thing that you need. And then GPS technology, you know, piggybacking, you know, into the running watches and the wearables revolution, um, which generally seeks to practice price discrimination by just marking up the price for these watches that look sort of more sleek and stylish, but are just full of a bunch of garbage metrics, which don't really mean anything at all, um, you know, just continues to push this stuff forward and you know maybe it's trying a lot i think a a good portion of that stuff tries to extrapolate meaning or conclusions from heart rate because it's something that you can measure um it's something that you know the market um the consumer has bought into as a useful metric and continue to to work on that and you know i i can certainly see how you could use heart rate potentially effectively to try to you know get people to like chill out if they're training too hard you know, but I think that obviously, as I've just described, has um, some methodological limitations. You know, I've had some success, I think, at times trying to use my heart rate monitor to pace myself. Um, but I don't think that it's ever led to a feeling of progression. I think it's made some runs more comfortable because uh, or rides more comfortable, climbing more comfortable because I've you know, used basically it's been a prompt to think about my effort. But if I'm feeling good, I don't look at it. <laughs> I, I ignore it. It's like more like, oh, I don't feel good. I look at my heart rate monitor and then I say, oh, it's here. And then I think, okay, let me go down, try to go down 10 beats. And then it's like, okay, because I went easier, I now am going easier. So I feel more comfortable. Duh, right? Big epiphany. And there are a couple other problems uh, to think about with heart rate too. First, uh, there's this, you know, understanding that O2, that oxygen isn't really like the limiter to performance. Um, and, you know, the heart is heavily associated with circulating the blood and, you know, red blood cells, of course, et cetera. Um, but if we look at like altitude training, right, which we associate conventionally with more red blood cells, um, well, not all studies actually will show an increase, a statistically significant increase and red blood cell count as a result of altitude training. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and I, you know, I expect there's going to be some re- major revision at some point um, about the perspective on this stuff around, you know, the heart, oxygen, red blood cells, and the way that this affects exercise. But it's something that everybody has heard so many times. We've just sort of like accepted it as true, as if it's like, you know, nine point eight meters per second. You know, is acceleration due to gravity. But is that actually a valid perspective to apply to looking at the stuff? And I think the answer is probably no, not really. And so if we look at these kinds of ideas that like altitude training improves performance, but altitude training doesn't necessarily increase the red blood cell count, the red blood cell count is tied to this oxygen stuff, and then like that's the heart and the circulatory system, et cetera, et cetera, then is that maybe meaning that the heart rate and this oxygen complex um, isn't as meaningful as we think. Okay. 
Second, uh, I don't really see the heart as being significantly metabolic. Um, you know, I tend to consider that exercise is basically a system of energy, which is then regulated by the central governor, right? It's regulated by the brain, um, you know, to not, based on like not dying, <laughs> essentially. And so we have to have the energy. And then once we reach the point as represented by the lactate threshold, where we start to decline in efficiency in terms of work that we can generate from um, our available energy, that that's going to be regulated by the central governor. And the heart isn't the metabolics of, you know, of movement. Um, the heart is a muscle itself, and it actually needs its own metabolism. You know, so there's also a perspective that people don't think about, um, like to what extent is lactate threshold, you know, changing the capacity of the heart to function. Um, and I haven't, to be honest, put a ton of thought into that yet, nor am I expert in that area, even if I had put a ton of thought into that. But, you know, the heart is muscle, um, and that muscle needs energy to do work and that's going to be a metabolic process and the lactate threshold is probably going to have an impact on that system too right so again we start to get into this thing of like we act like the heart is this like external value telling you something about what's going on but the heart is a, a mechanism that's a direct part of the process um so why aren't we thinking as much about whether or not we're training the heart we're using the heart to try to determine whether or not we're training um, but the heart is a part of the training, so and it's difficult then to try to take something like that and say, well, this can be used to reach some sort of objective set of conclusions or perspectives. And you know, it, and that's why I say, like, you know, wouldn't it make sense that a higher heart rate um, would lead to an increase in speed if it was really that critical? But I've not found that to be the case. You know, I can go for 20 minutes over 200 beats per minute and be still be going very slow. Um, it's, it's, again, right, this idea that I would have some sort of advantage over somebody else because I have these additional capacity, cardiac reser reserve or whatever. It, it, I've never had any experience that seems to suggest that's true. So if the heart isn't metabolic and oxygen isn't a limiter, then why are we so worried about that as a concept at all? Um, I, and I don't have a good answer to that per se, um, because I don't think there's a good answer to that. I think there are answers to that. Um, like we talked about with, you know, the market process and then, you know, our historical memory of training and that heart rate is a part of training. And I also think it's this kind of thing where you get to feel more legitimate about yourself as an endurance athlete because you're using heart rate and you're accounting for heart rate. But, you know, the, the heart is sensitive to a lot of other stuff besides physical exertion of exercise. It's sensitive to stress. It's sensitive to heat. Um, for example, when cortisol levels go up, heart rate goes up. And we've talked in other episodes about how higher intensity training um, is more traumatic, and that probably is going to lead to higher levels of cortisol. So is it also the case that when you're training too intensively that you're introducing hormone changes, which are going to then change the function of your heart rate, which again, further, again, I think should be ask, making you ask questions about how valid is it to use and rely on heart rate. Um, and I think the body is just not always equally sensitive to it. Um, you know, I finish sessions where I think that I've gone really well, but you know, with heart rate, I look at that number and the fact that it uh, felt easy uh, and, and I felt competent 
then immediately stops mattering to me the second I see that my heart rate was quote unquote too high, right? That And it's like, who cares? I ran this effort easily. That's what matters. I, I rode this effort easily. I swam easily. Whatever discipline you're doing, if it goes easy, that's the prog- that's progression. And looking at that and saying, oh, my heart rate is high, that's bad. Maybe that was good, right? Maybe I got a really good training stimulus for that. But we stop looking at, tr- we look at training in a different way because we start putting this heart rate thing um, up there to determine whether or not what we did was effective. And, you know, like we also see that sometimes, um, you know, you go to train and you feel like your heart rate um, can't get up above a certain number or you go to train, your, it seems like your heart rate is low. Um, and then there's different, you know, stuff out there you can read that says that, well, you know, high heart rate is a sign of fatigue or low heart rate is a sign of fatigue. And of course there's whoop and heart rate variability and it attempts to, you know, extrapolate data, um, from that. And I think that's limiting. Um, heart rate also is just not responsive during training initially, you know, it's reactive, but it's not responsive. So like if you're doing interval training, um, the heart rate is slow to rise. And so that's why for short, high, high intensity intervals, which by necessity are short, looking at your heart rate is kind of pointless uh, because it's by the time it's really up, you're probably done. So you can maybe look at the end and you could say, well, how high did it get? But you can't really be using that for data during the session, which means it's not instructive. You know, for me, I, you know, we're doing a lot of my training at 530 in the morning, um, you know, which doesn't always feel very good for my sleep process because I don't go to bed early enough, frankly, to feel that I've slept enough when I get up, although I'm not convinced that there's any um, amount of uh, time I could give myself sleeping to where I'm going to feel good getting up at five o'clock to go start working out by 530. But I don't know, maybe I need to experiment and report back. Um, you know, but that kind of a process, is that going to have an impact on my heart rate? Is it going to be higher or lower as a result? Does that mean my training is going to be better or worse? Am I getting more or less benefit because I, my heart rate is higher or lower? I just, there's too much possibility here. And even if you could answer all of those questions, the fact that there are so many questions that need to be answered, demonstrate that this is kind of a problem because it is limited and it's ineffective as a mechanism, right? Just like you can't use it to identify overtraining, right? You could walk away from that. Well, you're not going to rule of thirds, you know, one third of the time you're going to feel good. One third of the time you're going to feel bad. No, like some of the times you're going to go out and your effort isn't going to be what it needs to be. And when you have the right tools, you can look at that and say, oh, the reason why I'm feeling bad is because I'm not training the right way. And actually, if I feel bad a third of the time, it means a third of the time I'm wasting my time because I'm not training the way I need to train. So let's go back to kind of try to tie this these concepts together. Um, if we go back to the 1930s, uh, Voldemar Gerschler, uh, Dr. Gerschler, um, is probably the most famous example of applying uh, interval training. Um and here, there's a couple uh, quotes from uh, newintervaltraining.com uh, backslash oldintervaltraining.php if you want to look this up, um, but gives kind of a little bit of synopsis about what's going on. Quote, in its original form, the faster repetition, whether of 100, 150, or 200 meters, and occasionally up to 300 or 400 meters, 
would be run at a fast pace to achieve a heart rate of around 180 beats per minute. The next faster repetition run would start as soon as the heart rate had returned in the interval to 120 beats per minute. The training principle was based on the fact that the volume of blood in the body is constant for a given individual. As the heartbeats diminish in the interval for the same volume of blood, the quantity of blood plumped at each beat is increased in volume. The training effect comes then as the heart rate decreases. If the reduction of the heart rate to 120 beats per minute did not occur within 90 seconds of the end of the previous faster run, the workout was considered too difficult and had to be adjusted. Otherwise, the heart would be overworked, leading to fatigue and exhaustion, rather than to the desired training effect. Gerstler's training gave very rapid improvements in performance, and as the heart became fitter and returned to 120 beats per minute more quickly, the recovery intervals became naturally reduced. This natural reduction in the recovery interval due to increased fitness was combined with increasing the total number of repetitions to progress the training rather than increasing the speed of the repetition. Unquote. A lot of interesting things going on here, some of which might fit better with other episodes. But this original concept of threshold Threshold training, well, there's a slip, right? This original concept of heart rate training, um, which I think is based around a kind of threshold. Here, this threshold is this 180 beats per minute concept. And what they're doing here, though, is they aren't pacing off of heart rate. They're talking about training the heart. We spend so much time looking at all of the training through one paradigm, that of relative velocity Uh, time increments of work to recovery, Um, that's just the plan. And we don't usually try to think more carefully about what was the actual strategy. And this is a part of our narrow historical memory in endurance sport, is we don't recognize the diversity of strategies and how that training plans are based on strategies. And the reason why you can have different plans being effective is because you have different concepts of strategy. So there's probably some things here that, you know, we would say probably could, should be debunked, right? Um, For example, there was the assertion that the training effect comes as the heart rate um, decreases, right? And that's where we want to say more of what are they trying to articulate, but it sounds like they're trying to articulate that as the heart rates drop in the recovery, that that's where the training effect is occurring. And that's probably not true, right? But if we interpreted that differently, and I don't think, to be fair, this is necessarily the way in which it's being written, but I think over time, at a fixed level of intensity, um, you are seeing the heart drop more quickly after doing an interval. And that they're concluding that, well, this must be, this is an adaptation, right? This is a sign of fitness. So they're saying that's where we maybe can see this change in fitness. And when we're seeing that, that means we're progressing. So there's a metric there by which they're using heart heart rate to try to reach something um, more effective. I also think that it's worth noting that when we think about this 180 beats a minute, well, we know the first heart rate monitor is invented in 1977. So what are they doing? They're probably finishing and they're maybe, you know, checking their pulse, right? So 180 beats per minute, I think then becomes a concept of a kind of exertion because it's also the case that we know different people have very different 
heart rates. And I could get up to 180 beats a minute and be at an effort that I could do for a marathon. And other people might be an effort that they could do for 15 minutes. So in that sense, it's not comparable. But you take this idea of like using heart rate and then people's takeaway take away from this kind of stuff historically becomes, oh yeah, you use heart rate, heart rate and then uh, it works correctly. But that's a failure to understand that plans do not make sense without understanding their strategy. So like lining people up for battle uh, worked for hoplites and it worked for Napoleon. It uh, didn't work for the Civil War or World War I. <laughs> you know, ask yourself, what is the strategy? Right. Just applying the plan is not sufficient. You have to say, what is the strategy in order to get to the point where you're going to have something that's effective? Always ask this question. That should be your priority in forming your perspective about training. And I think that what they are also recognizing um, in their strategy is I think they're recognizing that the heart is reactive and then they're looking at it from a reactive perspective perspective. So like if it's gone down enough, then we're properly managing stress, right? Because the heart is reactive to the stress of training. Now, maybe that's not the way they would have articulated it, but I think it, you know, um, subjectively makes sense to sort of um, interpret what they're doing from that kind of a a perspective. And I think that is sort of reflected in, in the quote that I uh, shared from that source. And, you know, probably the most famous example of athlete training, um, with Geschler was uh, Roger Mullins, who had the world record in 1955 in the half mile when he ran 144. And of course, he loses to Peter Snell in the 1960 Olympics. And Snell ran 144.3 in the 800 and trained with Lydiard. Um, but I think they also basically used a strategy to training, which I would say is very similar. And finding a different plan to execute that strategy, you know, of, you know, looking at stress, monitoring, managing that level of stress. And that you were seeing there are very different plans, but in strategy, right, that they're actually doing something that is more similar than the plan might initially suggest. And so then we, you know, though, look at today. Well, is this how we use heart right now? And the answer is no, this isn't how we use heart right now. Now people use heart rate to identify supposed zones. And I think one thing that we can conclude is that heart rate is just a very limited metric for training purposes. It's probably a better metric for evaluative purposes. And I think it's probably a better metric to use to identify our level of stress. But we also see a limitation with that where um, you need to be able to identify trends in your training. Are you trending towards overtraining, for example, uh, because if you can't do that, then you're going to limit or curtail your ability to make the kind of progress or progression um, that you're looking to get out of your training. And I think ultimately the best thing to do, as with is the case with all of um, this stuff, is to test our hypothesis. And uh, you know this goes back to our aerobic calculator concept and Black Cat's law. You know we validate our training practices by creating progression. And a lot of people use heart rate and a lot of people don't experience a progression in fitness. That suggests that heart rate is not a tool that's going to suddenly, you know, right the ship. And a lot of people collect heart rate data. I'd say probably most wearables you get today are going to have heart rate. And I don't think it's leading to any kind of groundswell of shift in performance. So I think it's probably 
important to question the utility of this metric. Most of us aren't going to reach our true terminal velocity for a variety of reasons, and maybe using heart rate as a training pacer is one of them. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, check out some of our other episodes. We explore a lot of different topics related to training and the way in which our different ideas as a society, both contemporary and historical, impact and lead us to pursue certain training practices. You can check us out on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. Send us a message if you have any questions or if you have anything you'd like to hear addressed in future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. We'll catch you next time.